You would open up in your Bibles this morning to Isaiah 28. I'd like to read for us in just a moment, verses 14 through 22. The prophet says, Therefore hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers, you who rule this people in Jerusalem, because you have said, We have made a covenant with death, and with Sheol we have an agreement. When the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us. For we have made lies our refuge, and in falsehood we have taken our shelter. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. And I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line. And hail will sweep away the refuge of lives, and waters will overwhelm the shelter. Then your covenant with death will be annulled, and your agreement with Sheol will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge passes through, you will be beaten down by it. As often as it passes through, it will take you, for morning by morning it will pass through, by day and by night. And it will be sheer terror to understand the message. For the bed is too short to stretch oneself on. And the covering too narrow to wrap oneself in. For the Lord will rise up as on Mount Perizim. And as in the valley of Gibeon he will be roused. To do his deed, strange is his deed. And to work his work, alien is his work. Now therefore, do not scoff. Lest your bonds be made strong. For I have heard a decree of destruction from the Lord God of hosts against the whole land. It's our tradition here to say... That this is the word of the Lord. For some unknown reason, about a decade ago, I decided to do some tweeting. I started looking for ways to sound off on my latest thoughts to my massive following of 47 people. <laughs> if you've never sort of started on a venture yourself, you're likely unaware of the powerful inertia to dwell on the annoyances and pet peeves that Twitter culture seems to thrive on. And I had just landed on a fresh one. Seems that I had grown somewhat piqued at a common expression that I was hearing online where people expressed affection for their fortunes by using the phrase, love me some. Love me some hot chili on a cold day. Or the soccer moms, love me some mid-afternoon hugs for my kids when I pick them up from school. Uh, the worst one were the religious Christian ones. Love me some Calvin's Institute's readings for my Sabbath time. <laughs> so I fired up my thumbs in order to rid the world of this menace by tweeting the following at 2.48 on July the 13th, 2012. Quote, can we retire the love me some blank phrase? It's starting to make my skin crawl. How terse, how crisp, I thought to myself as I pressed send. Looks like I've done the world some good today. Well, later that afternoon, I got a notification that my tweet had been replied to uh, by none other than Scotty Smith, one of the pastors in Nashville. Now, mind you, I'd only actually met Scotty once uh, about a year before at a wedding that we were both uh, officiating. So I spent a couple of moments sort of basking in the light that Scotty Smith had actually acknowledged something that I had done. But then I actually read his reply to me, and it went like this. He said, love me some less newsome, dissing on some, love me some tiresome, cliche-ridden, boresome phraseology. 
Even reading that back now myself, I'm not exactly sure what Scotty's intent was in responding. But in that moment, I experienced what my mother used to call the prickly heat that comes up on the back of your neck when you kind of knew you were a little bit in trouble. It's that feeling of dread that you get noticed by, when you feel noticed by someone that you respect. And they highlight something in you, albeit inadvertently, that you might not have been ready to admit was really there. All I know was that I couldn't escape a singular thought, and it was this. Oh, no, I think I'm a scoffer. And that day marked a season in my life that actually has not quite ended as something that I think that the Holy Spirit has been trying to expose in me that I had been nurturing as a secret sin in my own heart. And that is that I had listened to the voice of the scoffer. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But to my shame, as I searched through my own heart, I saw that I had taken my seat among those for whom cynicism and weariness have come to define their posture in life. And if I were being all transparent and stuff, I would have to admit that I still hear that call to this day. I think that seat is still a little bit warm. And so the prophet Isaiah picks up a new section in his rebuke in chapter 28, where Judah's king hangs on the horns of a dilemma. Do we trust in the Lord or do we throw our lot in with the Egyptians for our security and for our safety? This, of course, despite the Lord's constant warnings not to do so. Well, in the midst of this deliberation that begins in verse 14, Isaiah takes aim at a very specific brand of Jewish holdouts who have become particularly onerous to him. I take this section that we just read as being chiastic, like we studied about a couple of weeks ago, with A and A prime being verses 14 and 22 respectively, with the bookend directed at trying to expose a certain cancer that had entered the leadership of Judah that Isaiah simply refers to as, you scoffers. The hinge of the stanza, I believe, being found in verse 16 in God's revelation regarding a certain stone. And look, I'm here to confess to you that the thought of my, of when I reflect on the sins of my youth, that I realize that they have given away to decidedly different sins of older age. Money, power, sex, they don't hold the lure that they once did. But the song of the scoffer, it's a little bit of a different story. And so I want to look at you with you this morning at these few verses in Isaiah to see what I believe is the antithesis of hope in the heart of a cynic. But we also see that there is hope cemented in the midst of the stone. And those are my only two points this morning. The call of the scoffer and the joy of the cornerstone. Let's look first of all at the call of the scoffer. Isaiah's rebuke begins with what the actual output of the scoffer's cynicism sounds like. Look at verse 15. He says, because you have made a covenant with death. Scoffing amounts to a partnership with death. Why? Because scoffing is done by those who have died on the inside. And so throughout the Bible, you get this loaded references that the scoffer in many ways, is the last degree of ungodliness in the Bible. Proverbs 21 verse 24 says, The scoffer is the name of the arrogant, haughty man who acts with arrogant pride. 
In 1 Peter chapter 3, 3 and 4, Peter predicts that we are going to have scoffers with us until the very end of time. When he says, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. You hear the spirit of the cynic? In other words, the scoffer is the guy who has been there. He's done that. None of this is going to change. He's exasperated. He's fatigued. She's lost her will to fight because she's just simply stopped caring. He's been to the puppet show and he's seen the strings. So he's learned to relish, though, the futility of it all because God's going to do what he's going to do and there's not anything that you can do about it. That's the scoffer. A scoffer, I would submit to you, lives by a singular word in our day, and that word is the word whatever. Someone in your church approaches you and says, hey, we're starting a missionary effort in such and such a part of town. I think it's going to be really exciting. Whatever. Or maybe you found yourself this last year saying something like, revival at Asbury College? Whatever. Or maybe you got the news about Tim Keller and Harry Reader's passing and going home this last month and thought to yourself, well, PCA was nice while it lasted, whatever. Or maybe more gravely, you found yourself waking up in late March at 3 a.m. after a shooter took the life of the daughter of Chad Scruggs at Covenant Church in Nashville, and you had to push back the thoughts that went something like, no. This is where I draw the line. There is no way that there is a plan in all of this. I am done. I'm walking. Whatever. Seems like these invitations for scoffing are around every single corner. But we scoffers, we're so unaffected. We're so disaffected. We feel so powerful when we roll our eyes at you so that we can undermine your passions. I feel so comforted that I'm so much better than you are. I'm above you. I'm above it all. I've seen you. Sure, it's just that I'm not sure I care anymore. This is the reason why Isaiah rebukes them in verse 15 when he says, For we have made lies our refuge, and in falsehood we have taken shelter. In short, the scoffer doesn't see as much as he thinks he does. In other words, you're just not that clever. You're just a child of your times. I was listening to a podcast last year hosted by cultural critic Chuck Klosterman who was talking about why it is that we've come to hate each other so efficiently in this generation. Simply stated, he said, it's hip to hate. We live in a generation that calls it the everything stinks, but I'm okay phenomenon. How did that happen? Klosterman says, well, the internet was the great big bang that ended monoculture. And so that the only way to make a name for yourself in the internet age is to be highly critical. Oh, of the right things, of course. Klosterman says, you almost have to have heightened negativity in everything you do because that's what it takes to be seen in the world. The internet so proliferated voices that it seemed that there was no other way to distinguish yourself. You probably have to be about as old as I am to remember just how utopian were the early expectations of the internet. Ha! <sighs> the world wide web. Now everyone has a voice, we said. Fast forward 25 years later and now we're saying, ugh, the internet. 
Now everyone has a voice. How did that happen? Well, the truth is, I don't think there's anyone who's immune to cynicism. People can be lured to uncare about just about anything. I was on an airplane last fall, and I noticed a fellow sitting across the aisle from me wearing a T-shirt. The logo on the T-shirt bore the same design as the American Cancer Society, but instead it read the American Sarcasm Society. Underneath the caption said, like we need your support. In other words, the part of the scoffer's soul where he stores sentimentality has long since been emptied. But ironically, Isaiah is the one who sees through all this, doesn't he? And you get two pieces of this in this section. The first is in the caption that's on the cornerstone in verse 16. He says, whoever believes will not be in haste. In other words, the contrast between the believer and the scoffer is that believers don't live the frenetic, frenzied lives that mark the days of the cynic. Haste scrambling, scampering. This is, these are these convenient substitutes that can oftentimes substitute for a true spirit-filled ministry. Second clue is in verse 20. For the bed is too short to stretch oneself on and the covering is too narrow to wrap oneself in. <laughs> That's vivid. You see, for the cynic, nothing fits. Try to find comfort here and there, but everything comes up short. Scoffers tell themselves that they don't care, but don't believe it. They care more than anything. You can sit on the sidelines and shout despair, but in truth, their lives are harried, hectic, sometimes searching desperately to make a name for themselves. Yes, they are forever in haste. So the question for us this morning is simply this. How in the world do you penetrate that kind of hard-heartedness? How do you reason with someone who is that steeped in their own self-deceptions? Well, that brings me to my second point, and that is the fact that there is joy in the cornerstone. Because I believe that until you diagnose the scoffer's heart, any attempts to sort of break through their hardness of heart are going to fail. And I'm reminded of my, one of my very favorite Steven Spielberg movies, now 30 years old, by the way, the, uh, the Peter Pan story called Hook. Central conflict of the movie, of course, is between Peter Pan and the pirate James Hook. Peter has only recently learned to fly, and he challenges Hook to a final battle for the soul of his own children. But in the midst of their epic final fight, Hook leans down and whispers this into Peter's ear. He says, you know, you're not really Peter Pan, don't you? This is only a dream. And when you wake up, you'll just be Peter Banning. A cold, selfish man who drinks too much, is obsessed with success, and runs and hides from his wife and children. Do you see Pit Hook using Peter's fear in order to crush his will to fight? That's the great tool of the scoffer. Because cynicism towards the world begins with cynicism directed at one's own heart. And it renders it stony and cold. And it's as if God is saying, I am going to meet your stony heart with another stone. Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. I am fascinated by this image of a stone in the Old Testament. 
There's nothing that could be more lifeless than a rock. Stones are constantly being personified, though, as analogs of God's judgment and of his promises. Go back to Genesis 31. Joshua gathers stones so that they might act as witnesses to God's covenant between him and Laban. Joshua does the same thing in Joshua 24. You get stone imagery that's used to talk about human hearts that have relied upon the law for salvation. Law written on stone, no less. Hence the promise of Jeremiah 31 to replace the heart of stone with the heart of flesh. Further, you get this persistent fixation in the Old Testament on the stones of the temple where, as it says in 1 Kings 9, Yahweh's eyes and heart will be there for all time. But of course, the privilege of having the temple in their midst for these ancient Jewish people meant that they would have to deal with the terrifying reality of God's holiness, wouldn't they? Isaiah would guarantee this very thing in Isaiah 8 when he prophesied, But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Isn't that strange? <laughs> How can a stone be one image of such fierce immutability and judgment, and yet at the same time be such a sign of security and safety and longevity? How indeed, because very early in the ministry of these first believing people, they took up this imagery of the stone and they applied it to Jesus himself. In Acts 4.11, Peter, the rock, no less, takes it up and he says this, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Think about that. At the very heart of the gospel that we preach, that only in Jesus can you find these two essential features of the stone being met in the same person. Can't you read through the New Testament and see that there's a stony permanence to Jesus' earthly ministry? A, a commitment to holiness that is unbreakable. So unbreakable that his father would judge him for it. Why? So that when you and I take refuge in him, that same stone can become a place of safety and of security and of peace. Like a home that's built on a rock. Look, on the cross, Jesus bears the holiness of his Father's wrath so that he can secure the salvation of his people so that he could be both just and the justifier of those who put their trust in him, which is, as it turns out, precisely what the scoffer needs. In the end, it's incredibly simple. What we're instructing ourselves with is that there is a necessity, even for scoffers, to come to the Lord in repentance and faith, in the conversion of any soul. It's simple. The scoffer needs to repent and believe. Take that first one. The scoffer needs to repent. There's a book that I read in preparation for this by a man named Dick Kyes. The book is called Seeing Through Cynicism. And in that book, he begins to highlight the way in which C.S. Lewis unpacks cynicism. Lewis would go on to explain that for the cynic, he's always trying to see through things. 
But he says if you're, if you're trying to see through everything, that's actually the same as not seeing at all. There's a blindness that scoffers are stricken with. But of course it's a lie. The scoffer is claiming knowledge that they actually do not have. It's so arrogant when the scoffer says, been there, done that. When in fact, you haven't come close to seeing it all. Listen to what Kai says about that. He says, but the great irony that we've been finding is that God, who alone has the intellectual equipment to be a cynic, is not cynical. God knows more than you know. And yet he himself is not cynical. As a matter of fact, he's downright sentimental. In Revelation 21.5, we see the essential horizon of God's providence when he says, Behold, I am making, that's present, active, indicative verb, I am making all things new. God is a God who makes things new. There's a newness quality to Jesus' work. You have never been there and done that when you're talking about the way that God works in the world. So in the end, repentance for the scoffer looks like the cynic being cynical about his cynicism. But secondly, repentance have to be, has to be accompanied and give way to real faith. And the way the text gives it to us is that it says that the scoffer must draw near to the cornerstone for refuge. And this gets to, I think, a unique character of the cornerstone. Because the stone cuts both ways, doesn't he? Jesus puts it this way in Luke 20, 18. He says, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. What's he saying? He's saying, look, there's two choices. You can either have the stone fall on you, in which case you will never survive. Or you can fall onto the stone and have it break you and humble you into joy. Now, how would a stone do that? How would a stone break me and humble me into joy? Let's go back to Hook, Spielberg's movie. Because again, prior to the scene that we just looked at, Peter has gone through this excruciating breaking himself. But he's woken up and he's realized his true identity. He's Peter Pan and he can fly. The only problem, though, is that his son, Jack, has fallen into the hands of the great scoffer, Captain Hook. Jack has even begun to dress in the costume of his new federal head. But Peter Pan leads this swashbuckling band of lost boys on a great assault of Hook's stronghold in order to save Peter's children. And the dramatic moment comes when Peter invites his son to return home with him, to which his son Jack cynically replies to him, I am home. You see, Jack has pledged his allegiance. He has made his covenant with death. But Peter's not through romancing the stone of his son's heart. As he continues to fight all these hordes of raiding pirates, he's still shouting back at his son, he says, Jack, Jack, you won't believe this. I found my happy thought. It took me three days to find it, but guess what happened when I did? You know what my happy thought was? And at that moment, Peter leaps up and he flies over the pirates around him. And he zooms up into the face of little Jack and he smiles and says, it was you. It was you. 
The writer of Hebrews 12, 2 says this, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I'm not sure there's a greater legacy that Tim Keller left with me than the sermon that I heard him preach on that passage where he entertained the question, what was the joy that was set before Jesus that gave him the power to suffer what he did? And the answer is, it was you. It was you. And in an instant in the movie, Peter Pan's son you know, melts in front of him. He slowly reaches up and he starts to pull off the wig and the dress on his head and he's ready to go home. The scene destroys me to this day, by the way. But think about this. It was the sheer delight in having you with him, happy and holy, that gave Jesus the hope to suffer the galactic indignity of the cross so that all things might culminate in the marriage supper of the Lamb where the bridegroom takes us to live in his Father's mansions forever, making all of this light and momentary affliction of a life pale in comparison. Now that's sentimentality. But isn't that what hope is? Hope is nothing more than having something to look forward to. We are the most cynical when our future, futures look the most opaque, are we not? But Isaiah is making promises. He's making promises that God will make justice the plumb line that he will sweep away the refuge of lies and that my covenant with death will be annulled. So for that reason, the most formative truth about our denomination's future holds itself in the realization of that hope, that hope of joy, that one day the world will give way to the love of the Father as he unites his son to his bride, the church. That one day there really will be a knight that will ride in and rescue the suffering princess. That one day the lion of the tribe of Judah will roar and break the stone table and make death work backwards. That one day the ring of power really will be thrown into the fires of Mount Doom and usher in the age of men. That's what we have to look forward to. But if it's somewhere in your mind you're entertaining this thought that that might be a little, a little too sentimental for you. A little too smarmy. A little too sugary sweet. May I suggest to you that you might be hearing the voice of the scoffer that whispers in our ear, but what we hope that we're going forward to as our, as our denomination celebrates 50 years, what we hope is that the bright hope for tomorrow that we're looking at is for all of our people to recommit ourselves to being nothing more than ambassadors of this singular hope that Jesus, the cornerstone, is still breaking up stony hearts and turning them into a joyful band of saints that are marching through what we pray will be another 50 years with the cross held high and looking to the time in which we will feast in Zion's house with our hearts fully restored. If you want that, then you've begun your assault against the spirit of the cynic. 
I want it. Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, draw very near to us as we come to your table, that this table might represent for us the joy that you have, that there's a meal that awaits us. And that as we rally around you in this place with these people, these other folks that have pledged themselves to you as well, we might draw real hope, real joy, dare we say real sentimentality as you draw all people to yourself. Give us a vision of that, we pray, as we worship and as we come to the table. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.